Amen. Great to be with you today. And before we get into the study, we have the great privilege of bringing little Joshua Stephen Smith to the Lord to dedicate him. So if his parents will bring Josh out, he is the cutest little guy. He's amazing. Look at that, punk. Hi, buddy. Are you going to have to play with my Apple Watch again? Keep you going? Yes, sir. <laughs> hey, buddy. Those people are more evil than you could ever imagine. <laughs> Don't trust any of them, okay? Except your grandparents. <laughs> Let's bring Josh to the Lord. God, thank you for this amazing gift, this special little guy who already in six months we just see him learning so much and developing just the brightness in his eyes, the curiosity, and we really sense he has such a cool spirit about him and just affectionate and and interested and energetic. And so we take everything that he is and we thank you for your timing and bringing this blessing into the Smith family. And I pray, God, that you would have him grow up to always know how much he means to you, how much you love him. Lord, may his whole family and extended family always remember to value him and to look at him and know how much you love them by giving them such an amazing gift. So you're loaning him to his family but we offer him to you to acknowledge that he is yours for eternity. And so thank you for this gift. Thank you for this reminder of how special we are to you when you look at us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Did you get enough pictures, Luke? <laughs> he is just one of the most chill kids. <laughs> yes, sir. You know, believe it or not, some kids, when I dedicate them, they don't want to be with me. You're like, you have discernment. <laughs> yes, sir, you do. You're looking like a little outlaw. Yeah. He's half Native American, but he's dressed like a cowboy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, buddy. <laughs> no, he's, he's not done. <laughs> He's like, I'll stay up here all day. Huh? <laughs> oh, here's your little thing. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. You can have the paperwork. See you, buddy. Bye. Whoa, what's that? What's that noise? Whoa. <laughs> Where'd they come from? Yeah, I know. Oh, uh, you're sweet. You're breaking my heart. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going through the book of 2 Samuel right now, and today we come to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Now, there's no way that, frankly, if I'm looking at the whole Bible and picking a chapter to teach on, I would never pick this one. In fact, I'm probably the only pastor, not only today, but ever, that taught a sermon just on this chapter. Most pastors would bunch it in with other chapters, because it's got some weird, bizarre stuff. In fact... When you read it, it's like perfect for Halloween, <laughs> even though I didn't plan it that way. I didn't plan all of 2 Samuel. So, okay, on Halloween, it's going to be perfect. It's a guy that gets his head chopped off, and another guy, the hands and arms, another kid who's get, who gets, you know, fallen, and he's disabled. And, and, you know, but 
It just worked that way. And amazingly, there are always some things that God wants to teach us, even in the most strange times. And that's the great thing about God's word. It was kind of funny, too, this morning before first service, I'm thinking about, God, here, what is this, a Halloween message? And, and uh, as I was going to the cabinet to get my five-hour energy drink out, I always take one right before uh, I start to preach first service, and it keeps me alert through third service. Well, before I take it, I'm not that alert. And I banged into the cabinet, and then I get my five-hour energy drink, and I drink it, and then I go in the bathroom, and I'm like bleeding. Down. I go, this is perfect. It's ha- happy Halloween, you know, but... I wiped it off. It seems like it's okay. But let's go ahead and jump into 2 Samuel chapter 4. It's an interesting story, but I know there are some lessons here for us as well. And so it says, when Saul's son, and it's talking about Ishbosheth, if you weren't with us to bring you up to snuff, you know, Saul was the king of all of Israel. But when he died, everyone knew that David had been anointed by Samuel and by God to be the next king. So they acknowledged that down in the tribe of Judah, the southernmost tribe. So they made David the king in the south, in Judah, in Hebron. So he's the king over one tribe. The other 11 tribes all went with Ishbosheth because a general, Abner, had basically, he had found Ishbosheth. He was an illegitimate son of Saul. So, okay, he's got the genetics. You know, no aptitude for the job doesn't matter. I can use him. So Abner had kind of promoted Ishbosheth as king, um, and Abner had been Saul's top general. So that wasn't working very well when Ishbosheth and Abner end up having a fight because Ishbosheth starts thinking that he's special when really all he was was a figurehead. They fought. Abner was going to go on David's side. But then David's general, Joab, killed him. And so now Ishbosheth is in a spot where he's like, I'm the king of 11 tribes, but I don't know how to be a king. I, what, what am I going to do? How is this going to work? The guy that was propping me up, I'm, I didn't ask for this job. So he's, as we come into chapter 4, we see that Ishbosheth is super depressed. Like, this is a problem. I don't know how to fight a war. I can't compare to the, you know, the popularity of somebody like David. Uh, how is this going to work for me? So when Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, Abner had been killed by David's general, Joab, he lost heart. That's kind of a powerful phrase. It's like the center of his being, the core of who he was, the life was sucked out of him. He was absolutely laid flat with depression and anxiety. And it was just like, ugh. Have you ever been in a spot where you just feel like, I just can't move right now? I'm I'm sure some of you have. But that's the way he felt. So now it says, uh, and this is kind of an interesting um, uh, side note, really. Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rahab. And the sons of Remon, they were from the tribe of Benjamin. So, like, here are these two guys who kind of like, now they're the top generals, if you will. They were like lieutenants or something. And now their boss 
has just died and their king is depressed and they're like, what do I do? Well, is there another member of the royal family? Because it's obvious Ishbosheth doesn't have what it takes. So then it mentions that Jonathan, Saul's son, who Jonathan was David's best friend. Jonathan was the guy that died in battle right alongside his dad. He was the guy that if you weren't going to pick David, you'd pick Jonathan to be the next king. But he had a son who was lame in his feet. He was disabled because when he was five years old, when they heard about Saul and Jonathan you know, being killed, his nurse took him up and fled. And she wasn't much of a nurse because as she made haste to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So the only relative left other than Ishbosheth is a little kid who has been permanently disabled because in the craziness of war, he gets, they're sort of trying to save him, but they're trying to save themselves too. He's collateral damage. Now that's, that's all that's left. So the idea, and he, Mephibosheth's going to come up later in the story when David finds out about him and actually takes him into his own house and makes sure that Mephibosheth gets all of Saul's inheritance. Like he would never be a ruler, but he got all Saul's property and stuff. And so it, it works out as well for him as can be expected. But at the same time, he had kind of a miserable life. In those days, no handicap ramps, no special parking places, no you know, electric wheelchairs and things like that. So he's in a rough spot. And it just puts it in here in juxtaposition with this story. And then it comes back to the sons of Remen. These two guys came during the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth. This is their boss. This is their king. But he's at home because he's completely overwhelmed. So you'd hope the two highest authorities would be coming to encourage him to go, hey, come on. There were times when David was really depressed and his guys would come alongside him and go, come on, you can do this. Joab would, would exhort him and go, quit crying like a baby, man. People, you're the king. You need to toughen up. But So you'd hope that that's what they are doing. But they came in there and it was noon and he was lying on his bed. Kind of, uh, it, it's a sign. Certainly one of the characteristics of someone who's overwhelmed and had the life sucked out of them. They're sleeping in the middle of the day. And they came all the way into the house Weird, no security. Nobody stopped them, but I mean, they were security. They were the two highest ranked military guys on his side. And so they came in and they acted like they just wanted to get something to eat, but they stabbed him in the stomach and then they took off. But when they came into the house, he had been lying on the bed in a bedroom and they struck him and killed him and they cut his head off and took his head and we're all night escaping through the plane. Happy Halloween. No, I mean, it's like, why would they cut his head off? Now, when you see this happen, and then later you're going to see what, what David does to them, we can look and go, oh, that's so horrible. He was dead already, okay? Sometimes we look at, and they had that tradition. Remember when David killed Goliath, he cuts off his head and goes, hey, look what I did. So it was kind of the way they did it. But we shouldn't look at them as being, oh, wow, that was so over the top. Um, because if somebody's dead, they're dead. You know, this is all, this is just a cultural aspect that sometimes they would do, as would, as we see what happens to them later. 
We can look at this and go, how barbaric. Oh, the Bible is just so disgusting. But then we can look at, you know, radiating 200,000 people and killing them as, well, you know, that's war. That's the way it works. It's all disgusting. Death is death. And so this is just telling it like it was. This is how it happened. So they got his head and they brought it to David at Hebron. And that wouldn't have been that unusual of a thing necessarily. But what are they trying to do? They're thinking, Ishbosheth cannot rule our country. We're going to be overcome and overwhelmed, and we better switch sides while we can. We better make sure that we are set up with a job. So like somebody who works at a company that's going under, you start talking to the competitors and finding out if there's a way you know, that you can, um, you know, like, like say you're an executive at Twitter, and you're like, uh-oh, we better find a government job, right? But, so, but they bring the head in, like, hey, look what we did. And they said, oh, by the way, here's the head of Ishbosheth, in case you didn't recognize him, the son of Saul, your enemy. They're like, remember Saul, the guy that was trying to kill you? Well, here's his, you know, the guy that took his place. Here's his head. Aren't you proud of us? Saul sought your life. Remember, Saul was the one trying to kill you? Well, now we finally got even for you. And the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. They're like walking in with the head going, look what God did. And David's like, seriously? That's, you think God did that? You think, do, do you not know anything about my history? You're telling me that killing Saul's son is going to make you promoted when I wouldn't take the life of Saul, and then he goes on, and David said to these two um, boys, who I'm sure some two guys will dress as them for Halloween, um, said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. He goes, I've stayed out of trouble because of God. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. He goes, didn't you hear about the Amalekite? And there, there was a conflict in the text, if you remember, if you were with us. The end, last chapter in 1 Samuel, it says that Saul fell on a sword and killed himself. First chapter in 2 Samuel, there's an Amalekite who claims that he wasn't totally dead, so I killed him, and here I am. I'm a, you know, I really helped you out a lot. Here's his helmet, here's his sword, here's his shield. Well, now in this case, David goes, the guy thought he would get a reward. So it probably indicates that the Amalekite was lying about having helped kill Saul. But at the same time, he somehow thought he would get credit for killing him. And he goes, didn't you hear about that story? We killed that guy. So what in the world made you think that somehow I was going to promote you because you would pull off something like this? How much more? When wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed. What have you done? Why would you think that this is something that I would want done? Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, hang them by the pool in Hebron. Again, gross, but they were still dead, so... 
but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Kind of weird that, that even Abner had been buried in Hebron because that wasn't where he was from. And then, you know, Ishbosheth too is dead there where David is actually king, but that's the end of the story. And so, isn't that a wonderful Bible story? I'm pretty sure they're not teaching it in children's ministry today. I'm pretty sure that it's not going to get on any of the Christian cartoons or, you know, it's a weird story. But everything that's in the Bible is here for a reason. Everything that's in the Bible is here to teach us lessons. God inspires prophets to tell the story as it was. The Holy Spirit inspires them and carries them along so that we could get these stories told the way they were. And that's one of the reasons why I like going through the whole Bible, where it's like, I don't want to do this chapter, and I especially don't want to do this chapter at Halloween, but it's there. And so there has to be lessons for us in this passage. And in fact, after spending a lot of time wrestling with it, I think there are some important lessons that we can learn from it. One of the first, I think, that's really important for us is you end up discovering when you read these stories that you will typically become more like your heroes. So you ought to be careful who you idolize, who you consider to be your hero or your mentor. Think about it. You know, we look at Abner and go, what a snake he was. But who did he work for? He worked for Solomon. Then he worked for Ishbosheth. And he got even worse, and he was awful. Now, these two guys in this chapter, they worked for Abner, and they ended up following his example. Now, you look at, at Joab and Abishai, and you go, well, then why aren't they like David? They never really, they were always thinking that they would fix David. They always thought David was soft, that he was wrong, and they needed to watch his back. But in terms of these other guys, they're like, you, Saul, you're the guy. You are my idol. Whether we like it or not, when we hold someone up as our mentor, as our example, we will inadvertently become more like them. And sometimes in an unselective way, sometimes we end up, usually if you're going to imitate someone, you'll sometimes imitate the worst things about them. Like you're going to copy Saul, you're not going to copy the Saul that was worshiping God, the Saul that was humble. You're going to tend to copy the one who was manipulative, who was trying to maneuver things into power. No one's perfect, so it's hard to pick somebody to be you know, a role model, period. But in this case, these guys died because they were doing what they had learned. They were doing what they thought was the natural thing to do. And somehow they convinced themselves that David would think this is cool. See, David wasn't their hero. They were just trying to slide in and snake their way into his kingdom. Their hero was the kind of guy who, like, Saul would have loved something like this. You would have got promoted if you were following Saul and you pulled off a move like this. In fact, Abner would have been like, that's awesome, guys. That was such a great idea. I wish I had thought of it myself. So in our lives, most of the people that we, that we emulate aren't people that are leading armies and trying to destroy people. But we should be very careful who it is that we hold up and elevate to hero status. 
no matter who they are. No matter how much good they may have even accomplished, be careful. We need to find role models that if I kind of followed the way they do things, I think my life would be better. I think I would end up looking more. I mean, Jesus is ultimately our idol. Thank God we have Jesus as the example. But, you know, the truth is, there are a lot of people who really wouldn't have liked. There are people today who call themselves Christians who would have hated somebody like Jesus. They would have thought he was weak, you know, that he, he didn't do something when he could have. They, people, a lot of times people today who say they're Christians, they're like followers of some ideal that they've made up, but they're really nothing like Jesus. They're self-promoters. They are ambitious. They're, and who do you follow? Who is your, who is your mentor? First of all, it has to be Jesus. Secondly, we should try to aspire to be kind of like people that we see who seem like they are actually following the way Jesus is, his character, not, not being you know, those who are, you know, have an idea of an ideal in mind as to what they're going to do. A second thing that I see besides you become like your heroes, you also need to be aware that most of your you know, enemies will be those who are supposedly your friends. You know, it's, chances are the person who's going to really hurt you, like somebody who hates you and you hate them, they can't do you that much damage because you're like, well, you know, that's you. I, I discount who you are. But when there's someone that you trust who's close to you, you think has their back, I mean, this is why nobody would have stopped these two guys from going in to Ishbosheth's house because it's like, well, I mean, come on. They are two great leaders of the armies of Israel, and they would certainly be loyal. Don't ever make the assumption that anybody is loyal to you. Be aware. No, you know, I have vulnerabilities. I need to take certain precautions. And when somebody who's my friend stabs me in the back, I need to go, yep, it happens. Happens a lot. It's not going to get to me. It's not going to tear me apart. And I, I see this here, like, Yep, the ones you've got to worry about are the ones that you think you don't have to worry about. I mean, that's just a fact of life. And if we're going to be wise, we need to understand that. We should also be very suspicious from this story and so much of this book. Be suspicious of people who are ambitious. And be suspicious when we are ambitious. It's a wonderful thing to make plans and to try to accomplish things and move forward. But there's a desire to be more and more and bigger and bigger and to get ahead and to be prominent and to promote myself and to make it about me. There's some huge dangers to that. And we should be conscious of that within ourselves and go, okay, I don't mind thinking, wow, it would be cool if this would happen. But at the same time, be very suspicious because you can justify almost anything in the name of the bigger truth, the bigger value, the most important thing, and that is me accomplishing something, me being famous, me being you know, in charge, me being over other people. It's a trap that has taken people down from the very beginning. When Eve fell in Genesis 3, it was because the devil made her feel like you're not really enough right now, but you know, you could be a lot smarter if you ate this fruit. In fact, look how good it looks. Man, I bet it tastes amazing. It was that desire 
for more than what she had that spurred her to do what she did. And we see that throughout the scriptures. And so here, I would say, when you see these guys or Abner, somebody like this who's ambitious, even Joab, you go, be careful. People who are ambitious can justify almost anything. And what's right and wrong becomes lost in the process of, sorry, whoever I have to step over to get where I want to go, that's what I'm going to do. And so we see this here. Another thing in this passage that hit me, I thought, why is the story of Mephibosheth inserted into all of this? This poor kid who didn't do anything wrong, he's just a little kid, he just happens to be related, and in that way, okay, he's a potential target, and then they end up not taking care of him and protecting him for real, and he ends up falling and spending the rest of his life injured, and I think that's... A huge tragedy. David saw it as such. Later, when he hunted down Mephibosheth, took him into his own house, and told him, you're going to inherit everything that Saul had. I'm going to make sure of it. It was like, how did this kid become collateral damage? But the truth is, in life, so often, kids are the collateral damage. They can't stick up for themselves. They can't get up and run like somebody else. So they feel like they have to be carried. And it's tragic, and the scriptures give a lot of examples of this where you need to value children. I mean, children are the ultimate you know, collateral damage of all war, of most ambition, of everything else. I, I think in our, and I'm not going to try not to get on a rant on this, but the last few years where we've decided, um, not we, but it's been decided, that you know what we need to do is just keep kids out of school for a couple of years. I'm sure it won't hurt. Now we see the research that kids... See, what we already knew was that just by having summer vacation, the average child loses six months of their nine months of education. So now what happens when you throw a mask on them and keep them out of school for a couple of years? (coughs) What they lose, they will never recover because your brain development is on a ticking time bomb. Your brain can only learn what it can learn for a period of time. So why do you do that? The same reason why they're giving vaccines to little kids. Now again, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, it's not Bill Gates' plot and all that, I got vaccinated. But at the same time, they, they vaccinate little kids because they're afraid they're gonna make old people sick. I don't want anybody to jeopardize the life of a kid to protect my life. My life, it's already been good. I'm playing with house money. I've been blessed. If I die, fine. I don't want somebody messing with my grandkids so that I can live a little bit longer and they give up a chunk of their life. But that's our culture today. We do everything to try to protect the strong from the weak and kids pay the price. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the attitude toward abortion. And again, I've, you've heard me say it before, there is no verse that says, thou shalt not do an abortion. But why is it that in the election that's going on right now, it's all about, oh, a woman's right. I, I want to throw up every time I see a commercial for that, or I get stacks of mail telling me this is the most important value. This should determine your future, that you have a right to kill kids. Now, the law already in California gives you a right to have an abortion. But what that new amendment does is it takes away any 
uh, decision for how far along can you be. Viability is now off the table. Why are they so anxious to do that? Because kids are collateral damage. Kids get in the way. They may make my life, you know, just unstable. And so it's like sacrifice kids for the adults because the adults are... That's why when Jesus said, man, don't treat kids like this. Let them come to me. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. It's important for us to recognize. And from this story, it just comes to mind and partly maybe because I'm hearing so much about it lately and I'm not a guy that rants on and on about stuff like this but hey are kids worth something to you or are they simply somebody that gets in the way of you doing what you need to do and if they are injured so what now this doesn't just extend to a situation like this how many of us find that the greatest damage that we have in life was something that was done to us when we were a kid. That we were injured like Mephibosheth, and maybe not in a way that shows physically, but how many people are devastated in their lives because of being treated like somebody that didn't matter, being you know, devalued and, and messed up? How many of us still carry wounds from when we were children? And I suspect it's a lot of us. And so... To me, I can't read this story without being reminded kids aren't just collateral damage. Kids are the future. It's, you know, God puts them first, not last. He doesn't stick them on a shelf. We should value them. Now, another thing, though, is I look at the story. I think it's important to acknowledge that even as Ishbosheth was plagued with depression. He had the life sucked out of him, and he really just felt like going to bed and staying there. There are plenty of people who feel that same way. There are plenty of people who every day feel like, I would just like to sleep it off. I would just like to not get up for various reasons or all kinds of reasons. But the one thing we learn that Ishbosheth should remind us of, nothing good happens because you let your depression just put you to bed and stay there. Somehow, however you feel, and we see this with David. David was really depressed a lot of times, but he was blessed enough to have people around him who go, come on, you're the king, get up, you need to lead us. Ishbosheth didn't have that. He had the two highest ranking guys in his government come and kill him because he's sleeping at noon. Now, I know that it's hard. I, I know that it feels like the most logical thing in the world to just sleep through this horror that you're going through. But that never helps. You know, you will be entrapped completely if you can't bring yourself to get up every day and attack life. And going to work or doing things, being with people, it's not going to heal your depression but at the end of the day, you'll go, I felt like sleeping today, but instead I actually went out and called a few friends. I did some stuff. I fixed a few things. I tinkered around the house. I whatever. You're always going to ultimately feel better because you did that. Now, having said that, again, it's a complicated issue. All I'm saying is if you struggle with depression, sleeping is not going to help. It really doesn't. And it actually will make you more of a victim than you have been already. Um, but I also, you know, during the holidays, this becomes a time when people are incredibly vulnerable. Um, 
you know, they've lost loved ones, and so the holidays are just like, why can't I just skip Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas and get on to, you know, something else? (laughs) Um, So Pastor Ken here has a seminar that I ask him to do every year, and he's doing it again this year, called Hope for the Holidays. And it's going to be this coming week, November 6th at 1 p.m., And if you think you could use something like this or you just think you might learn things that would help you encourage other people, um, email Ken, ken at ccpacifichills.org and Ken will be happy to sign you up for that. They're going to serve lunch and you can just kind of get some practical help on how to deal with things when you don't feel like getting up. But you know you really need to anyhow. And so um, we do that because this is real. But when we read the story, we go... Yep, that's a real issue. And you may not get stabbed and beheaded, but nothing good's going to happen if you just decide to, you know, check check out and just zone out and keep everyone away from you. That's never the pathway forward. Um, Another thing in this passage that hit me was um, David, in an amazing way, he only wanted to be promoted if God was promoting him. There were a lot of people that would have helped David. Remember, when he had a chance to kill Saul, it was his bodyguard who is saying, let me do it. I'll do it. I'll hit him once. You'll be king. And he goes, no, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And he chose not to take that action. And a part of it is because David knew he's the next king. But how do you get there? Do you have a sense that God is going to take you somewhere and then you're going to make that happen? That goes back to our point about self-promotion. It's like, that's a dangerous thing to leapfrog whatever would normally happen in life that God might do in order to just get where you're going. And so this heart of David to say, do I think I'm going to be king? That's what Samuel said. Would I like to be king? Do I want to be king? Do I have the capacities for it? Yes, yes, and yes. But I'm not going to do something to make myself king. I don't want to be self-anointed. And I also don't want to be anointed by somebody like Abner or these other guys. If I'm going to be promoted, I want God to do it. A lot of times in your life, you may have a sense of what you think God's doing. But it's so hard to be disciplined enough to go, If this is what he's going to do, I'm not going to have to do something to make it happen. I'm going to wait and see what he does, and he'll do it in his timing. The last thing I was just going to point out, too, is that David wasn't, we often talk about him and being, you know, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. But it seems like there's something even deeper going on, because Ishbosheth wasn't the Lord's anointed, and yet David mourned his death. And certainly, you know, When you look at Abner, he was never the Lord's anointed, but David mourned him the way he mourned Saul. Because David had this deeper principle, I think, that leadership matters. I mean, whether or not somebody is a great righteous leader, whether God put them there or not, David seemed to have a sense of, I don't want to take somebody out who is the leader of others. And you might go, why? And if they're not a godly leader, why not? Well, I think David understood there's collateral damage. Even when you have a bad leader, if you take them out, you damage their followers. 
when what happens to a cult when the leader of the cult is taken out? They don't all of a sudden wake up and like, oh, now I see the truth. No, they try to latch on to whatever they can to scramble. And if anything, they hate whoever took them, took them down. And so with David, I think he understood. And it's a lesson that I think we would be wise to learn as well. You know, if somebody is a leader, let me, I'm always going to tell the truth. I'm always going to try to be an example of what a leader should be. But I don't want to be that guy that's out there exposing and calling out other leaders. Because David seemed to understand, you do that, you're just going to hurt people. You just have to honor people and let God do what he's going to do. And God's really good at that. It'll be fine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story, as gross as it is and as unusual as it is. We understand this is inspired by you. Help us to learn these lessons that David shows us, the lessons, the bad lessons that we learn from guys who are just trying to promote themselves. Help us to never be those kinds of people. Help us to trust you to elevate us however you want, to put us where we're supposed to be. Free us up from that ambitious hunger for whatever that might turn us into people that we wouldn't want to be. Lord, we thank you for for David as the example. As much as he messed up a bunch, at the same time, he did seem to have some great respect in a way that you would look at it and go, yep, that's my heart in this too. Lord, we see you put up with bad leaders a lot. Help us not to just help you out by thinking, well, we can take them down. I don't know why God doesn't, but we can do it. Lord, help us to wait on you and then just to live our lives as examples of your character, to look like Jesus in our world. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.